you have your Bibles, if you'll turn to Second uh, Timothy, and I'll get there in just a moment. Want to talk to us about trust this morning. Um, lots to be said also as relate to Lent, but we're going to leave that be for, for just a moment and just recognize that distrust is uh, pretty much become a reality of, of uh, our daily lives. We have been so well trained in being skeptical that far too many people have actually thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Even to the point where some people does not even know. And they become foreign to the very idea that you can live life in trust and the peace that comes with that. And yet, we have to recognize, friends, that trust is foundational. It is indispensable for any human beings. If you start thinking about it for just a short moment, you'll recognize that all our decisions are based, when everything is said and done, on what we trust and what we distrust. Where we find comfort and where we find insecurity. It's, it comes from that place. Many of the psychological issues that are going on among people today have their origin in that very fact as well, that people have become completely foreign to the concept of trust. They lack trust in themselves. They lack trust in politicians, they lack trust in their employers, they lack trust in their friends, they lack trust in their families, and worst of all, many, even those who carry the name Christian, have become foreign to the notion that they can have complete, utter, life-changing trust in the Almighty God and simply throw themselves in His arms And say, Lord, I trust you with my life, everything about my life, completely. You know, that's where we live and that's what it is. So let's talk about trust for a moment here, right? And and, uh, in this area, as well as in every area, Holy Scripture has a word for our daily life. When you uh, study these holy pages, if you will, you'll discover that not only would you find answer to a lot of questions you have, but you'll find great principles for life that will fill you every day with joy and trust and confidence. Moreover, you'll find a power that will allow you to experience life as as bursting with joy and new vitality. And so the text today from 2 Timothy uh, verses, uh, eight, uh, verses 12 and on uh, speaks to us about just that, about trust. And it speaks to us about uh, trust, uh, where it's coming from, its origin. It speaks to us of trust uh, about uh, how it gets nourished. And it speaks to us of trust about what is the fruit. Of trusting. How does it manifest itself? 
I want to begin in verse 12 and kind of ended there last uh, week, but let me just pick up and, and repeat that verse and, and spend a little time there. I'm not, Paul says, ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he's able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. Now hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that all those in the province of Asia had deserted me, including Ephigilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant him uh, that he obtained mercy from him on that day. Trust and knowledge, two sides that can't be separated, if you will. That's why Paul formulated himself the way he does. I know. Whom I have believed or in whom I have put my trust, which is just as strong a a translation of that. I know. And notice here he's not saying, I know that which, I know who. It's a massive difference between those kind of way of, of looking at this, right? I know who. And because he can say that, he can also follow up by saying, and I'm persuaded that he will not. Avoid or letting go of guarding that which he has entrusted to me. The powerful, powerful statement when you know here what is going on. Paul's certainty is not resting upon some kind of intellectual conviction about specific doctrinal statements, although clearly Paul had those. It's not resting on a certain theological conviction, although Paul certainly had that and built on that. No. What happens here is that he says, I know God, and I know him personally. I have recognized who he is from my life. He has been part of it as I walk with him, as I struggled, and as, as I've been in pain, and as I've trusted him where I thought no one could ever rescue me. I have come to know God. Personal knowledge. That's where it is, and that's why he knew and how he could know that God was in his love and in his power present, even there when he pens these lines from his prison cell. It was unthinkable to him that God would forget him and not hold on. I'm not ashamed because I know in whom I put my trust. And I read that. And I have to, not the least in the time of Lent, but always. I have to ask myself, could I say that? Are these just words that sounds good? They even can be put into lyrics of, of great hymns? Or do I really know that? Not that I've heard about him. Not, not that I, I, I've read about him. Not that I once had an experience with him, but I know him. 
Could you say that? With any kind of integrity and authenticity? I want to spend a few moments here just looking at what characterizes people who truly know their God. As I was reading this verse, my mind went straight to Daniel. Uh, Some of you will know that. Uh, If you're not familiar with Daniel, you can read about him. You'll find him in the Old Testament. He's kind of the first of the prophets that is not really, really long, if you kind of go that way. Um, and here's what he says. He, he, is, he is facing um, a situation where he's been called in uh, by uh, the emperor. And you need to kind of see that, that you got this little, you know, Jewish boy. And, and uh, we had Nebuchadnezzar, right? And then the, his follower, the emperor uh, of that whole Babylonian empire is calling him in and said, I've heard great things that you can do this and interpret this and know these kinds of things. And, and then I'll give you, you know, golden power if you will interpret this writing that is on the wall for me. And here's the response. Daniel says, I don't care about your gold and your power, but I know a God. And here's it goes, right? I know a God who is sovereign and whose greatness and glory and majesty uh, was Recognized even to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. But because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages were terrified and fearful of him. But when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal and he lived uh, with the wild donkeys and was fed like the cattle. In other words, he had boanthropy. Are you hearing this? Here's this little Jewish boy. And this mighty emperor of all the empires who by the snap of his finger could do anything he wants. Serving other gods. And Daniel says, this is it. He's the God. He's the one who allows you to even be where you are. Great boldness, high thoughts about God. And he shows us just that. And may I just implore with you, do not belittle God by turning him into some kind of genie that you don't really need all the time. And and so every so often problems come your way and you'll pull him out and ask for his help. Don't get to that point, dear friends. He is not one who just by the skin of his nose is able to help you and the world when there's need. He's the Almighty that no one can thwart his ways. Listen to a prayer that he prays, even, even when you look at that, you know, Daniel, just a couple of of uh, verses earlier or chapters earlier when he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar when he was still in power and he said God is the one who changes the times and the seasons he removes kings and establishes kings he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding he reveals the deep and the hidden things he knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him Friends, that takes boldness when you stand in front of that. But great people who, have, who know their God have great thoughts 
about God. But not only that, there's a boldness that comes to this. It's kind of a certainty. And, and I don't know if you remember, but also Nebuchadnezzar kind of uh, got persuaded to, to have everybody worship a golden statue and, and him for that matter. And then he got word that Meshach, Shadrach, and, and Abednego didn't do that. Friends of Daniel. They were not about to do that. And then Nebuchadnezzar calls them in, and he has these fiery furnaces, huge, massive ovens, if you will. And he said, I'm going to throw you in those if you don't do it. And what God is there then, who can then save you? Now listen. Listen to this. Here's the answer that they give. If the God we serve exists... Then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, O king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden statue that you have set up. Are we hearing this? People who know their God has great thoughts about God and does not belittle him to something that is, oh, I got him too in my back pocket, so to speak. It's a powerful, powerful example here. And the origin for that kind of confidence and trust is a personal knowledge, a walk with God that has allowed you to recognize his presence and hear his voice as you walk with him. I know whom I have trusted, right? Or whom I have believed. And Paul shows us the significance of this again and again. If, if you know the story of Paul, I'll encourage you if you're not doing it or haven't done it ever. You know, read uh, about Paul uh, as Luke writes about him mostly in, in the, in the uh, Acts of the Apostle. Read his letters and you will see just how this works, right? For example, here's a simple statement from Paul that highlights that. As you look here uh, in, in this text, in chapter 20 uh, of the book of Acts, and then we'll read <clears throat> here from verse 22. He says, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I'm compelled by the Spirit, and I don't know what I'll encounter there, except that I know that in every town, the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and affliction are waiting for me. I'm going. I'm compelled by the Spirit. I don't know what would happen, but I know it's going to be bad. And here he is now, writing these letters with chains on his hand. Most likely, just telling Luke to pen what he speaks, right? And so he says, I have no one here but the beloved physician. This is it. And you wonder when he's there, had he lost confidence? Has he said, you know, back when I wrote the other stuff, I was in a different place. It's easier to say, I will do this when pain, pain and hardship comes. Now I'm in it. 
So I'm rephrasing this stuff. No, friends. No, 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 no. There is no wavering. There is no loss of trust and boldness. The personal relationship he has with God has created him in him a confidence or trust that holds on, that will not let go, whether he is he is experiencing good days or hard days. I know, and I'm persuaded that he has the power to hold on, to guard the things that he has entrusted to me. That's the origin for deep trust, friends, is your knowledge and your awareness of God in a personal way. The, the, uh, the nourishment, or even nutrition, if you will, of trust that won't let go or that holds on is found in what Paul here calls sound teaching. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me. You know, we know here, and I mentioned that several times from this great letter, that this is at the end of Paul's life, just days or weeks or something before he would be executed. And so he's using this opportunity to impress upon us, Timothy, and through this letter to us, the importance of finding nourishment, real nutrition for your faith and for your trust through sound, health-restoring, protein-filled, if you will, Bible-trusting, Christ-centered proclamation and teaching. I'm pretty convinced that the image that, that is running around uh, Paul's mind, certainly the image that they conjure up in, in our minds, is that image of, 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 of healthy food that will create a healthy body the same way you'll have sound or healthy teaching that creates healthy Christians. In fact, that word that we translate in this translation with the word sound really means that which makes you well. The exact same word that Jesus used when he says, those who are healthy do not need a doctor, those who are ill do. Or when when John is writing to his good friend, the third letter, he begins his dear friend, I hope you will prosper in every way and be healthy just as your soul is healthy. Same word right there. I hope we're hearing this. Are we? Not just kind of, yeah, I hear your words, but are we getting this? It's been somewhat of a common idea that that worshiping and participating in, in Bible studies or what have you is not extraordinarily important. It may be a good thing. There's nothing bad about it. But it's not necessary in the true sense of that term. Extraordinarily vital for our faith. You know, we hear even flippant remarks about this that, that sounds more like, you know, I'm glad to kind of uh, plaster on the wall my spiritual uh, ignorance when they say, you know, is it not better 
To be at home in the bed thinking about God than to be in the church thinking about my bed. I don't even know what to do with a statement like that. Because the Bible is pretty clear. It is only through eager desire for sound teaching and proclamation that you come to know your trust will grow and increase and your knowledge of God will find nourishment and strength, new proteins, if you will. To walk with him. You know, it's, it's an intriguing text that we have uh, here. Because Paul is pointing exactly to those folks for whom this has slipped. You know, we, the whole letter is, is, is so riveting in so many ways. And so here he says in verse 15, and it, it, it kind of drills into your bones it says here you know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me and you go what Timothy was pastor of the largest church of that right the the domineering church if you will the church in Ephesus which Ephesus was the capital of this whole province Paul has spent two whole years there. Read about it in, in Acts chapter 19. And he had been there with such effort and with such, you know, uh, providence, if you will, from God that it, he says that every household, Jewish and Greek, had heard the gospel. But now, now, slowly but surely, these churches were, were turning away from this sound proclamation and their eagerness to stay close. And when you turn to the last pages of Scripture and what we call the book of Revelation, there's a description of many of these churches right there. It begins in chapter 2. You can read it when you come home. And I'm, I don't have time to kind of rehearse all of that. But just listen to the first one, which is exactly to Ephesus. When John speaks from Patmos to that church, First, he praises them for holding on and to being strong and being faithful in many ways. But, he says, I have this against you, that you have lost your first love. Notice how far you have fallen. You lost your first love. And then he goes on. Those churches. And he says to Timothy... Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you've heard from me. Because that's what brings the fruit of the confidence when you look at it. These were dark days, friends. I hope you can get into a story like that. You can feel with Paul, maybe, if you try to kind of understand the narrative that's going on. You know, it, it was not only was he looking... From death row, that it wouldn't be long until he would be, he would be uh, decapitated. But his friends, the very people for, for whose sake he had been thrown in jail, had all left him, deserted him. 
Whether they were doing that because they were afraid of being kind of associated with a criminal and maybe that could come to them or they thought if if I'm bold like Paul was I'm going to be there as well or it's going to hurt my social status if they see me with him I don't know what caused that but something did and so you can almost hear the vibration of pain in his voice when he says even 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 Figulus and Hermogenes have left me. These were dark days, friends. But in the midst of this darkest of dark, you find that this trust that holds on brings the fruit. And we hear some of the strongest teaching we may even have on discipleship from Paul. Back to verse 13 and 14, Paul says, Hold on, Timothy. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. No wavering. No hesitation. No uncertainty. Here's a man who knows his God and who in the midst of the darkest of days Still lives a life where there's no, no cluttering of his mind. That this is about what God called him to do. Make disciples, baptize, and teach the word. And so he rewards him. And I'm going to conclude with this, friends. He rewards his trust. Because in the midst of these darkest of days, someone is knocking at the door. And when he opens, Onesiphorus is right there. One man out of a number of thousands that Paul had led to Christ. He is there. And Paul is saying, Listen to this man. Look at this person. Even when everyone else is leaving, he not only came, he sought to find me in one of these prisons in Rome. Boldness. Risking his own life to come see his friend, Paul. Here's someone who lived up to his name. And this forest means someone who, who brings benefits or someone who, who bears fruit. That's the literal translation of his name. And you wonder, at least I do, one of my prayers during this time of Lent is, am I more like the friends that left or more like Onesiphorus? Forrest? It's a real question, friends. It kind of is. We're not playing life. We're living life, yes? And we give it, we get it once to live. And so, what does it say? Paul says, he refreshed me. That was it. He refreshed me. He was not ashamed of who I am with these things, but he refreshed me. So that's it, friends. God is on the outlook. He's looking for people who are not ashamed to be his disciples. 
He's looking for people whose trust in him is unshakable regardless of what comes their way. He's looking for people whose knowledge of him is so thoroughgoing that not even the darkest day will shut down that light. God is looking for people, even here in Louisville, who along with Paul and Onesiphorus will stand up and say, I'm not ashamed because I know the one I have trusted. And I'm sure that he is able to guard whatever he's entrusted me until that day. Could that be our prayer for this Lent? Could it? Let's all stand, friends. Some of you may want to come here and just say, I, I got to have a special time of prayer. Some of you have seen even well-known people during this time on, on the news and other people speak out about their faith and about how they commit their lives to Christ. I, I saw it just the other morning uh, on Ash, Ash Wednesday morning. Even Mark Wahlberg were very, very bold about his, his faith and his commitment during this time to Christ. Could we find that also among us? Yes. Let's pray. Some of you may want to join our fellowship and be part of this church. Others may want to recommit your life. Father, we ask that words from this powerful text may not just dissipate to the back of our minds or even completely. Speak to us. Continue to speak to us every day, every morning. As we pray, as we call on a friend to pray, as we ask you to walk with us in a way where we can come to say, I know God. Speak, Father, as only you can. And call people to stand up and stand out just for your sake. In your name we pray, amen. Come on up. We'll sing and the floor will be open up here.